Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Manafinawa of Te Whanganuiatara, where I'm recording today. It has been a book. It has been a week. It has been a month. It has been a lot. It has been a lot. And um, yeah, and now our last episode for this book and for our second season. Aren't we just amazing? We are amazing. (laughs) I love that we've committed to this and I love that we've spent this time together. Me too. And I love that we just like stuck with the book and wrote it out and talked through the bits that we struggled with and talked Mm. through the bits that we love because they were bits of both. Mm. And yeah, it's good to commit to something, you know? That's true. Still thinking about how we lock ourselves in a room with a book for 10 weeks a year and stay with it. That's a big commitment. That's actually like huge. We have lives. We have things to do. Yeah, we've got other stuff going on. But this is important. It is important. And it, like, it's really important that I get to carve out this time with you as well. And I say to my friends, yep, I can do that on Saturday, but I need to be home by five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be there. I've arranged everything for this too. I'm like, no, no, I work on Saturdays, guys. It's serious. It's capital W work. No one gets my Gen V time. It's just us. It's time we dedicate to ourselves too, which I think is really cool. So uh, we're wrapping up this week and we're reading chapters 19 and 20 through the theme of shame, which was interesting. Mm. Do you have a little story for us about shame? I do a little bit. Um, It's more of like an overall experience of like being a person Mm. who experiences shame. Um, So when I was thinking about shame, I went to the number one shame researcher who is Brene Brown. So um, I basically just went straight to the chapter on shame and read through it. And the thing I got from it was that shame is a feeling of like disconnection or a pervasive belief in our own unworthiness. But the thing that she didn't really say out like explicitly, but that I believe entirely is that shame is a liar. Mm. It gets not truthful. So the way I experience shame is I've lived my entire life in a state of either scarcity or abundance, which is to say I am either too much or not enough. Mm-hmm. This is super not true, by the way. Like, I absolutely know it's not true. But that's just the message that was introduced to me at a young age and by enough people. So I managed to internalize it. And I just also want to say, I don't think anybody did this to me, like, knowingly or on purpose. Like, my mother did her very best. My teachers at school did their best. I had great and supportive adults in a lot of different places, at church, at school, in my family. But I was still always, like, too much or not enough. Mm-hmm. I was too smart to be not turning in homework that I had definitely completed. I was too rude to be invited back to playing at a friend's house after commenting on a messy playroom. I was too loud when people just wanted quiet. I was too big and awkward when all the girls around me were wispy and tiny and cute. Um, I was too impulsive, too distracted, too angry. Or I was not helpful enough, not smart enough, not motivated enough, not thin enough, not small enough, not capable enough. So in order to like cope with this, I began to internalize this idea that I had to be perfect or productive or useful in order to be valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw no value in trying to be better at things I wasn't already good at. So I would just make a joke and move on. So if I wasn't perfect at something like pretty much right away, I would abandon it. Mm -hmm. Um, I also became the best ever at trying hard. Like I learned that self-deprecating humor and my natural charm pretty much did the job and won people over. Um, I turned tidying into an obsessive coping mechanism and became known for being organized. Um, I tried for years to pretend that having anxiety was just a quirk, like, oh, I'm here half an hour early. I'm always early. You know me. I'm never late. And same with my depression. Like, sure, I'm in a room that's slowly filling up with water, but how could I be depressed? I'm the most Mm. optimistic person I know. Um, Plus, I'm still super terrified of dying. So, you know, could a depressed person be this cheerful? And the answer is yes, they definitely can. (laughs) Um, So in my 30s, after a bunch of research, I ended up seeking an ADHD diagnosis And this was like the pivot point for me. My psych was really quick to spot the depression that I was convinced I didn't have and immediately put me on SSRIs like that day. Within a month of taking antidepressants, I wasn't in that room anymore. Um, I could breathe. And then we started on stimulants and suddenly I could think and do stuff. And after six months of meds, I started in talk therapy. I started with CBT. Um, I like to think of it this way. You have to get the hiking boots on before you start hiking. Mm -hmm. And for me, meds were the hiking boots and CBT was actually getting on the mountain and hiking up the mountain. 
But a lot of the shame that I'd been internalizing my entire life about being too much or not enough, there were super real valid reasons for that. I don't want to medicalize everything, because some of the shame I felt about being too much or not enough was just 100% not getting social cues or misunderstanding something or Mm. being too impulsive. And like anybody could experience that. But for me, I really was part of this club that was like, oh, no, actually, you do have executive dysfunction and um, you do struggle with emotional regulation and you honestly can't get it together to do your homework sometimes, even though you sit there for hours staring at the piece of paper, willing yourself to put that pencil to it. I have been there and done that. Because my kids also suffer from this, like they also have ADHD. They struggle with executive dysfunction and emotional regulation too. Um, They're amazing though. So if they have the same struggles that I had, then it's not about what I lack or what I have too much of. Maybe it's just what it is. Like it's just a thing. Um, And that kind of took the sting out of the shame. That feeling Mm. of always lacking or always being too much for me. Like I still catch myself feeling ashamed about some stuff, but most of the time I can reframe it. I know I'm too much sometimes and I know I'm not enough enough in other ways, but like I am who I am and that's actually enough for almost everyone who loves me and shame's a liar. Shame tells me things about myself that aren't helpful or useful or true. So I'm not interested in anything it has to say anymore. Yay, you are amazing and I do love you. I really, really really relate to that story as well just this idea that yeah you internalize these things and you feel ashamed for behaving the way that you are and you make these value judgments about yourself and Mm. you project onto what other people are viewing you as and none of that is necessarily true and it's so valuable when you get to that stage where you can go actually this is just what it is it isn't right or wrong it just is absolutely i was talking to a friend of mine who's having she's having twins i was telling you about her yesterday and i'm so excited Mm. Uh, But she was saying she was worried about feeding them. And I was thinking like when I was feeding my daughter and we didn't get attachment correctly until six months after she grew teeth. And I'm looking back, I'm like, that's nuts. I would not have said to another parent in the same situation to keep trying. Sometimes I'm so afraid of being ashamed of myself for not doing something. I still won't give myself any slack. Yeah, you kind of just push on, right? Because you're too ashamed to ask for help or too ashamed to acknowledge that maybe you're struggling with something. So you just keep doing it, even though you would never expect it of anyone else. You would never put that on anyone else. Which is why I think that advice of like, treat yourself as you would your friend is really important sometimes. Mm. Because you would never do this to someone you cared about. So why do you do it to yourself? Exactly. Well, that was a nice, heavy story. Do you want to maybe maybe let's lighten it up? Can you tell me, did you have any moments of wonder this week? Um, yeah, so I had a really long week this week and I had to go away for work. And I really love flying as a general rule. Like mm. my dad is an aviation and so I grew up in and around planes and I'm very privileged that that was my life. And so I just really love flying. And for the longest time, I really wanted to be a pilot. But so there's always like a moment of wonder for me when I'm on a plane. Like I never get sick of it. I never get sick of the magic of flying. And I think that, you know, you see people take it for granted all the time. People just get on and get off this plane. I'm like, but this is a feat of amazing engineering. Like the Mm. fact that we can do this is amazing. And what is happening in this plane right now is actually amazing. So that is like a moment of wonder I have every time I go on a plane. But also I was just sitting in the airport on Friday waiting for my flight back home. And watching people scurry about and just like doing their things. And it was like, you know, we're so privileged in this country that I'm even in an airport and people Mm. are wandering around and it is really busy and people are running for their flights and no one inside the airport is wearing a mask and everyone is just living their life. And it's just like, that was a moment of wonder as well. Like sometimes I just overcome with these moments where I'm like, oh, we get to have this life. Aren't we just so amazingly lucky? I love this country. So yes, that's my moment of wonder. (laughs) That is wonderful. I also love flying and I love being on an airplane and it always feels like magic to me. I know people just get on and I'm like, this is not a bus guys. Like this is actually an incredible (laughs) thing that is happening. And yes, it's terrible for the planet, but it's just amazing. It's amazing that we do this. I think it's okay to fly and enjoy flying. I enjoy driving and I feel guilty enough about that, but I love to drive. So, well, let's remember that it is the corporations, like a small number of corporations are predominantly responsible for most of the carbon emissions. It's yep. not us that is the enemy. Yep. We, by putting it back on the consumer, those companies are letting themselves off the hook. So we have to remember to keep them accountable, even if we are doing things to make the environment or at least our world 
slightly better. Yeah. No, do what you can, definitely. Yeah. How about your um, moment of wonder this week? Well, I am sure that you are sick of me talking about this because I have talked about it nonstop <laughs> for like four days. So my friend Bethany often gets me into shows like she started reblogging <laughs> gifts from the show Ted Lasso and I was like, oh, she has such good taste. So I started watching Ted Lasso and oh my God, Jen, it's so good. <laughs> it's like if Leslie Nope were from Kansas and had a mustache and were a football coach but like a soccer in the UK football football coach. It's in English. I thought it was American for some reason. Well, it's because Jason Sudeikis is American and he actually is recruited. And the premise of the show is that the woman who owns the team got the team as like a settlement in her divorce and her husband, her ex-husband was so horrible that she's decided the best way to take revenge is to like ruin this thing that he really loves. So she's trying to tank the team basically. So she hires this like, absolute quote wanker but it turns out he's like the most optimistic sunshiny amazing person he's just so good and everybody everybody i love everybody i can't i can't (laughs) everyone should watch this show it's just there's so much goodness in it and every time ted lasso wins someone over against their will you just love them a little bit more cute i love your excitement If you don't watch it, then when you come to visit me, when we officially get our travel bubble, then Mm -hmm. I will make you watch it with me because it's only 10 episodes and it's wonderful. It has been like absolutely a lifeline for me this week. I really loved it. Oh, I love that. I just love the enthusiasm. It's great. I feel cheered up already. Shall we do some chapter summaries? Yeah. So in chapter 19, Richard wakes up at the Blackfriars Abbey. They care for Richard Dorr and the Marquis, and the abbot reveals that the key that Richard won during the ordeal can return him to London above. Richard is knighted by the Earl for defeating the Beast of London, and the Lord Ratspeaker returns his belongings. Dorr uses the key to send him home. In chapter 20, Richard returns to his life in London above. Everyone remembers him, he's been promoted, he has a nicer flat, and Jessica wants to reunite with him. It's everything he wanted, but he isn't happy. In desperation, Richard carves a door into a wall and calls for his friends. Just as he's about to give up, the Marquis appears and leads Richard back to London below. That was a good finish. The first time I read it, I felt it lingered a little bit on the process of him getting out of London below. And I was kind of like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. But then like the second, third time when I went through it, I thought, oh, no, it's good because we ended up getting all of these goodbyes. Yeah, it was a bit like a lingering thing. I agree. It was like, OK, and now he's at the Earl. Why is he at the Earl? And it kind of just goes on. But it kind of it ties up all those threads. Mm. It's like a nice little bookend almost stories within stories i was reading a little bit about the structure of the story because i was curious and it is like entirely a hero's journey tale Hmm. Um, and i wish i had read more but then i put my phone down and forgot about it and had to go and look for it (laughs) half an hour later so that's as much as i can tell you because that's as much as i absorbed from that article (laughs) but um i did love the symmetry of how we then got to see everyone unspooling from the tale as it had wound us all in and then it was unwinding to get Richard home. So we got to see mm. the Velvet Children and we got to see the Lord Rat Speaker. He knows the Lord Rat Speaker is despicable. He doesn't want anything to do with them because of how they treated anesthesia. Yeah. They called her expendable and he was just like, you guys are garbage. And the Velvet yeah. Children came to blow kisses at him, which was nice and creepy. And yeah, and he got knighted. I know, he got knighted and given free reign of the underside so he can just walk around unmolested, basically. That seems like a pretty big deal. Which was the point where he should have gone, oh, maybe I don't need to go back to London above. But no, never mind. He had his idea and he wanted to stick with it and go back to London above. Yeah, I think that's kind of important, though. If he had not gone, he would not have missed it. You know what I mean? Like, Mm, he needed to leave mm. London below in order to fully appreciate it. Appreciate what you have, right? You Mm. don't know what you have until it's gone. Yeah, and when he went back to his old life, even though it was improved in several ways, it just didn't sit well with him. So did you find shame anywhere in the chapter? Yeah, so there were a couple of things. So I sort of thought of shame as in two ways. Like, I thought of it as that kind of that painful feeling of distress, you know, that Mm. is caused by your foolish behavior or, like, wrong behavior that you get. So that kind of traditional sense of shame. And then I also thought about shame in this kind of as a regrettable situation, you know, like, oh, that's a shame. It's a shame that that happened. I didn't even think of that. And I also thought of it as being, like, shame on you as kind of like a lol because when the abbot calls them all idiots, basically, for not knowing anything, (laughs) he's like, you're all idiots and you don't know anything. I was like, haha, shame on all of you. 
you're all a bunch of jerks. So that, that was pretty funny. Joy. So I was like, mm, that's a different kind of shame. I thought that Richard still feels shame around Hunter's death. I was like, there's a bit of complication there around him being seen as the warrior. I think there, and there's shame that plays a part in that. Because, you know, when he, someone says, you know, you're a warrior and he's like, no, I'm not. And every time he refers to the knife... It's always my knife Hunter's. slash Hunter's knife. Yeah. It's never separate. And I feel like there's a lot of complicated emotions there where, yeah, you know, he's got this honor and he gets knighted for it and all these things, but he doesn't feel like he fully owns it. Yeah. And to be fair, he really doesn't fully own it. He had to be handheld through that whole process. Mm-hmm. It really was a mm-hmm. joint victory. Yeah. I love that even though he gets all the credit, he's pushing back against it. Although he can't articulate why he's still pushing back against it. Yeah. I was thinking back over the whole book, actually, and there was a lot of shame in how Richard talked about himself like he was always doing things and then hating himself for it Mm. and that's like a sign of shame but he looked down and hated himself for it when he was on the side of the wall the first time he met old bailey he asked door oh you're up then and hated himself for it and and that's just Mm. small talk like he has he just feels like he's doing the worst thing ever there's just a a lot of discomfort that he experiences in being a person um so i felt like there was just a real shift when he got back to London above and was like more confident and he he was able to figure out his place even though things had changed while he was away he managed to bully the property manager into getting a penthouse (laughs) (laughs) like yeah there was that great line where uh page 358 the old richard the one who had lived in what was now the buchanan's home would have crumbled at this point apologized for being a nuisance and gone away instead richard said really there's nothing you can do about it he stands up for himself right yeah yeah he just won't accept that the outcome is his responsibility to solve the problem is his responsibility to solve and even opening up to gary and telling him the whole story is another iteration of that right because past richard would never have dared do that i don't think i agree because the opposite of being ashamed is being vulnerable Mm. and richard made himself very vulnerable to derision to I don't know, being committed <laughs> to an insane asylum? Like, I don't know. It would have not been great if Gary had not been so receptive and lovely. Hmm. Um, I, I think there's also something about, he he calls Jessica Jess, but then he immediately corrects himself and says, I'm sorry, Jessica, which is not being ashamed of doing the wrong thing, but like hmm. immediately fixing it. Yeah, and then he, he doesn't call her Jess again after that, even though she says, oh, Jess is fine. Mm. And he's like, no, I've mentally corrected myself. Finally. Yeah. And then, I, yeah, and that whole interaction was interesting as well, because, you know, she asks, is there someone else? And he's like, no, I've just changed. Yeah. And I, I really loved that. It really reminded me of Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings. One of my favourite bits in Lord of the Rings is when Frodo is at the end and, you know, everyone is happy and happy to be back in the Shire, but Frodo's not himself. And there's that great line where it's like, how do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there's no going back? There's some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep. And I feel like that's where Richard is. Like, and there's shame in that too, because he wanted to come back to London above and now he's there and he's supposed to be happy, but he's not the person who left. Yeah, I got that really strongly too. He so desperately wants to enjoy his old life but it's what like it's what he wanted it it was his entire goal and now that he has it he's like oh wait yeah and there's that bit where he's like oh he can see his life you know he can marry this girl and it'll be fine but Mm. it won't be enough i think there is a sense of shame for him and that being like he's ashamed that it's not enough but i think he also feels shame for leaving london below behind there's a part of him that regrets it right and with regret comes a sense of shame yeah, it's the the life that got away. Mm. And I think everyone feels a bit of like, oh, this is a shame that this is happening, that Richard leaves in the first place. Like, you know, the Marquis doesn't even turn up to say goodbye. I thought that meant that he was ashamed of his attachment to Richard. <laughs> I thought he was feeling very weird about feeling so affectionate and he just didn't want to bother maybe feeling vulnerable. I love that reading. It's very on brand. <laughs> this is me. I don't like goodbyes. I sail through them so brightly and cheerfully and then I go and lick my wounds when no one can see me and no one ever knows. Like I am super closed up about that. So I was mm-hmm. like, I feel you, Marquis. I get you. And I thought it was compassionate of Dor to like explain to Richard, oh, maybe like saying goodbye is just like comforting people. It's something that the Marquis is not very good at. I'm like, 
That's quite a nice reading of it. Though. That was a really good, yeah, that was a really good example of compassion. There were a few more things that I saw that I felt were really compassionate. Dor asks him to stay, mm. but she didn't expect him to say yes, which was also another kind of compassion. She wanted him to, but she didn't try and make him. No. And then she says to him, don't look back. And he looks back. I think that's what did it. Mm. If he had not looked back, he could have maybe told himself it was all a dream and been okay with his life. But he did look back. I thought, obviously, the Black is going in and retrieving them all and nursing them all back to life was compassion as well. Mm. But particularly the um, friar who was there when Richard woke up, I thought he was acting really compassionately. I love that description of him offering Richard the water and it being described as like he had been repeating it to himself over and over for the last 40 minutes to make sure that he didn't forget. I'm Mm. like, I've done that. I've done that when I've gone somewhere and you repeat it in your head being like, okay, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. Me walking from any room in my house. I kind of love that the Blackfires, their entire job is to be compassionate to people who are in search of the key. And because Richard is the master of the key, they're compassionate to him. Like, how did they know to come and find them Mm. there? Were they following them the whole time? (laughs) They had nothing else to do. And he even asks them at one point, doesn't he? He says something like, why didn't you tell us what the key was Mm. for? And they were like, well, that's not our job. I thought that was shameful too. Like, there's shame in that. You can't just, you know, shame on you guys. You could have stopped all of this if you had just um, been a little bit more forthcoming. But you'd be like, oh, no, that's not in my job description. No, No, we don't have time for that. Yeah, no. But I mean, there would be no story goodness um there's a lot of compassion in the way that richard treats jessica i think Mm. he's really respectful he still thinks of her as beautiful he isn't cruel he also doesn't give her any false hope like i think one of the worst things you can do is like let someone wear you down when you know that your heart isn't going to change and i don't think he could have fallen back i don't think he having had the experiences of jessica having been in London below like I don't think he could go back on equal footing with her in any case so it's good that he just kind of put it to bed and and that was that but there was definitely compassion in the way he treated her he was very respectful and I love that and he gave her the ring anyway like hmm it's a nice ring it's a chunk of change it's the most money he's ever spent on anything yeah yikes I thought the old Bailey coming down to give Richard a gift was incredibly compassionate he's underground and he's a rooftop man we know he doesn't like going underground and yet here he is to give him a feather and he's like a gift me to you bit of a thank you and it's free like oh my gosh (laughs) and it honestly broke my heart when richard just threw it away i was like i cannot handle that you just threw this in the gutter yeah i thought that was a like the favor for the marquee maybe Mm. like give this to richard so that if he ever wants to come back he can yeah I don't know. Like, the Marquis came right after that. Yeah, he went back for it. But it's almost this moment where, you know, Richard is trying to convince himself that he doesn't believe it happened, that it was actually just a hallucination. You know, he wants to believe Gary, but he also can't. Well, he had a broken finger and, like, actual stitches and... And he has Hunter's knife, you know? He wouldn't have that otherwise, so... He's physical things to represent his time there. It would be one heck of a hallucination if it weren't. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just love how compassionate Gary is to Richard. Like, that one really struck me. Gary listens to him. He listens wholeheartedly. No judgment. Like, he's really, really in tune. And he he senses that Richard's not right and Mm. goes to find him and, like, is relieved that they're still friends and hears him out. It's really beautiful. Like, it's they're better friends than I thought. And I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to see it. Yeah, even though Gary was cheating on his girlfriend. I didn't say he was a good boyfriend, but he's a good mate to Richard. He is a good mate. And yeah, he takes that time. and He's very okay with the way that his life will go, Gary is. And I think it gives Richard that lens of seeing into like, this is good for Gary, but it wouldn't be good for me. I thought it was also interesting that he left out the bit in the story where Gary, you know, he had that fake Gary in his head during the Mm. ordeal. Like, he doesn't tell Gary that, and he just mentions at the end that you appeared at some point, and it was a pretty horrid bit. And I thought there was shame in that. Like, Richard was kind of ashamed that Gary had taken this form in his memory. Like, he didn't want to share that with his friend, because they are good friends, right? Or maybe he was afraid that it might be a little bit true. But if I have a bad dream about someone, I'm like, I can never tell them. Because what if they say, yes, I do feel that way about you? I suppose in a way that Gary is kind of saying what he said in the ordeal as well. This kind of like, you know, none of this is really real. But he does give Richard a really, like, he says to him, 
more to the point, do you believe it? Like, he doesn't mm. have to believe it in order to still support and care about Richard, which is just, like, this is exactly the kind of support that Richard needs at that moment. And he's able to give it. He's got good coworkers. Sylvia also invites him out because she sees that he hasn't been out so much. Like, that's an act of compassion, too. I thought it was interesting that the story had sort of come full circle. Like, we started with Richard out with his mates and him taking a breather outside because he's so overwhelmed with everything. And we end at the same time. You know, mm. he's out with his mates and again he has to go outside and get a breath of fresh air and you yeah. kind of have the repetition as well where you know sometimes there's nothing you can do it's the same kind of language and there's an old woman out there with a dirty white umbrella that he later encounters Mm-hmm. it starts and ends with the door and that bit where you know she asks him because he's pulled out a knife on her <laughs> great Richard I know not in his best moment <laughs> she asks him what does he want on page 370 and he says I really don't want anything nothing at all and then he realized how true that was and how dreadful a thing it had become and it just made me think of when he was sitting with the abbot and they were talking about you know what now you know Dor got revenge for her family and the marquis has repaid his favor and so he needs to get what he wants which is London above and now he is there and he's like oh I don't actually want this We've spoken about this before, about how wanting is actually like a driver for being, Mm. but like wanting something more. And for Richard to not want anything, like he doesn't do anything. He doesn't watch television. He doesn't go out with people. He just stands and looks at London at night Mm. until all the lights go out. And then he puts himself in bed and he doesn't want to stop looking like that is not somebody who's happy with their lot. He does want something. He just doesn't know how to get back to it. Yeah, and then he sits sits down and he's like, Richard sat down on the pavement and wondered quite how someone could make such a mess of their life as he had made of his. And if you looked at it on paper, his life is not a mess. His life is fine. But it's yeah. not the life he wants, right? Yeah. I just watched Soul with my kids this week. Oh, yes. Um, And there was Soul 22 who had been around like the 22nd Soul ever created, right? So Soul 22 had been around for a while and had not found their spark. And, 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 you know, Soul 22 does get their spark, but it isn't anything. It's just like, are you ready to go and live your life? Hmm. Like there's no real answer. And I loved it. Um, But I've been thinking about that a lot. Like we don't need to have a purpose or a calling. We just have to be able to live and engage. And it feels like Richard has lost the ability to like live and engage. Mm. But did he ever really have it? Everything seemed to happen to him. Well, that's the thing. He's so passive, right? So he never really had it, but he didn't feel like he missed anything before. Whereas now after he's been through all the stuff, maybe he's realized how, how much he missed in his previous life, how devoid it was of meaning. Yeah. And like this really thrown that into sharp effect. And it's like, well, okay, being promoted and having a fancy flat, none of that really makes up for the fact that I don't have anything to ground me he doesn't even unpack his boxes yeah and that's he feels a great bit of guilt about that so there's another example of shame he knows what he should be doing but he can't make himself do it been there (laughs) um yeah there's also that bit where he's like you know do you ever wonder if this is all there is and i love a bit of a good existential breakdown (laughs) lord knows i had my fair share of existential breakdowns on the streets of soho exactly where dear old richard is walking So I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been there. I feel (laughs) you. I'm Gary in this. I'm like, everything's fine. Why are you worried? I am a want what you have kind of person. Which is great. Ultimately, I don't feel like there's some big unanswered question that I'm missing out on the answer to. Um, I was just going to say, when the Lord Ratspeaker gives him his bag back, and I was thinking, you know, the Lord Ratspeaker probably thinks this is a great act of compassion, but Richard doesn't see it like that. I love that Richard, he was very royal about it, wasn't he? Mm. Like, this is what is owed to me. He's bought into the baronies and the fiefdoms, hasn't he? He doesn't even really acknowledge him, does he? Does he speak to him at all? I don't think he does. No, he thinks thinks about the way that they talked about anesthesia. Oh, yeah. He says thanks, but that's it. And then he just walks away. But then later he does try to speak to that rat, which I kind of loved. I liked that bit too, especially because the rats don't talk back to him and he's not a rat speaker, so I don't know what he thought it would accomplish. Just to know, I guess, like just wanted to some sign that he was part of something. And I love that also that, you know, he was sitting on the tube and he was searching the faces and then he thought he saw Lamia and even Lamia, who he was afraid of, not five pages before, he's like Mm -hmm. rushing through the the carriage to get to her. It's kind of how a new moon, Bella loses the plot and just tries to find whatever (laughs) vampire she can, regardless of it's one that's going to kill. Her. We should probably have actually titled this podcast, We'll Make It About Harry Potter and Twilight, Whether We Like It or Not. <laughs> 
I should do a Twilight reread this year. It's I think it's time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Brings me such joy. Like, I'm sorry. I I know. I, I know it's problematic, but oh my gosh. We are allowed to love problematic and perfect things. Nothing is without conflict. Nothing is perfect. There is no such thing as perfect literature. So we can read trash and enjoy it. And I've said yes. before, it's a great example of a young woman in literature, in a story, getting everything she wants. She goes and gets it. She has agency. Creepy, creepy agency. What else was I going to say? Do we think it's compassion that the Marquis comes from in the end? I kind of do. I thought so too. And that he stands there just long enough to be noticed and does this big show of yawning and like carrying Yeah, He's like, you owe me a favor for this. But like... I'm secretly happy. (laughs) I, I really do think that the Marquis got his soul back when he got his life back. That's what it felt like to me. He's a more complete and realized person now. Yeah, he's likable. Maybe that's why he didn't say goodbye to Richard. He was just waiting for Richard to come back. I wonder if he was just been following Richard around this whole time because I wouldn't really put it past him. I have to say this book is a perfect example of how to write a story well. Mm. We could nitpick and we certainly have. There are a lot of things that could have gone. All of the sexism could have been binned and it would have still been a fine book. None of it was essential to the story. Even in this section that we just read, the security guard and his gross literature. Yeah. We, we know that people are depraved. We don't need to see it. You don't have to spell it out for us. But yeah. So despite all of the flaws in the actual story, the story itself is like solid. And I really appreciated that about it. Yeah, it does really come full circle. I really love a bit of symmetry. I'm a big fan of symmetry. And I think this is just like everything is so neatly bookended. We kind of you close all the loops. We've got yeah. the friars and then we've got the earl and then we've got the Lord Brat speaker and then we've got Richard's friends like in London above. So it's like all these like brackets being closed mm. within the story, which I just love. And I love the symmetry of like we start with him out on the sidewalk outside of a party and we end with him in the same way and it's like his complete transformation within that. If you look at Harry Potter it's a ring cycle series so like four is the hinge or the pivot and then Mm. it all just repeats backwards Mm. in various ways and it's incredible when you start actually making those comparisons like what changes and what evolves from the beginning of the story to the end. And I love seeing that in just a single text with Richard where we're in the mm. story with him and like we get a lot of different perspectives. It's not just Richard. He is the hero of the story in the literary sense. Yeah, even though Dora is the one who does all the work. <laughs> so it's interesting because like he goes on his own hero's journey, but it's not Dora's story. Like Dora's on this mission to save her family and do all that. And she essentially does that herself. But Richard mm. just kind of has this tangential arc that... He's along for the ride and he's going through his own transformation, but it's not actually about saving the day. It's not the Luke Skywalker, I am the chosen one story. It's just like, oh, I happen to be here and now I've killed this beast because Hunter told me what to do. And in the process, you know, I've kind of figured out how to stand up for myself and what I value about myself. And I think Mm. the fact that he never lets go of anesthesia is really important. Like the fact that she comes up again and again, she is like his true north. You know, he cannot get over the needless loss of this life. and. keeps him true. I absolutely agree with you. The fact that she was killed has never stopped mattering to him. Mm. It's his link to humanity, really. Yeah, it stops him from becoming cold and calculated like the Marquis was, right? Like, this this thing that just brings him back to what he cares about. He's got a good heart, and she's a reminder of that. And sometimes it's not enough. He couldn't save her. It wasn't enough to keep her safe, but he's never going to stop trying. He's compassionate, and you're right that it's not enough. And we see that in a lot of places. Richard is not perfect. He falls down (laughs) and is rude and is obnoxious and... Cruel sometimes. But he is compassionate. Fundamentally, he cares. Mm. And I think he just now cares about a different set of people and wants to be with them, maybe. He had to go back to London above because he had to know that it wasn't for him anymore. I think he didn't really realize that he didn't actually have that much in London above. Like We spoke about it very early on in reading this book where we were like, why is he so desperate to go back? He doesn't really have anything. He doesn't care about his job. He doesn't really have friends, really, like a a massive friendship group. He doesn't really have family that he speaks of. Doesn't seem to like Jessica very much, really. So why is he so compelled to go back? But it's almost like he felt that he had to. That's just what the logical thing is. Like, that's the step. He was just ticking off the things that he needed to do. There wasn't even a sense of place with him, right? No. Like, when I think about where I live, it's not just the people, but like... 
I have a favorite shop and I have a favorite mm-hmm. cafe and like I have a favorite walk and two ovals that I run at and like this is baked into the fabric of my daily life. Richard doesn't seem to do that. Yeah, he's not grounded. He doesn't have ties to anyone or anything really. And so he was compelled to go back and it was only when he went back that he was almost as if he's only just realized that. He's like, oh, I actually have more things keeping me to London below than I ever had to London above because he allowed himself to experience things in London below. He had, he lived, whereas he never really lived in London above. Well, he was kind of forced into that position of being made vulnerable by not knowing anything, by having to rely Mm. on others, uh, by not fitting in. You forge bonds with people in moments of great stress. We've all seen Speed, right? Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. He Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeved his way into London Below in a way that just wouldn't happen in London Above because the stakes were so low. Mm. But he already fit. Like, he just blends in because he is a mediocre white man. And it's just really easy to fit in when you're a mediocre white man. And as Gary said, that's fine for a lot of people, you know. He'll just coast through life. I think he needs to prove himself. And When things are handed to you, it's hard to prove yourself, right? And he's had a lot handed to him. But he still isn't making those connections. I thought it was interesting because when he comes to in this section on page 339 you know he has that moment where it was a tremendously liberating feeling as he was free to be whatever he wanted to be he could be anyone at all and then he goes through this little bit and he wakes up properly and he says he found that he was Richard Mayhew whoever that was whatever that meant he's kind of still in the discovery right he's still in the meaning making of who he is now that he is the warrior now that they've been through this thing and yeah he's woken up and gone what am I doing with my life what am I doing who Who even am I? Which is, I mean, we should all be asking ourselves those questions, but maybe we don't need to be tortured by a a divine being in order to ask those Mm. questions of ourselves. And then the bard writes a song about him and they call him the dauntless devout defender. (laughs) Wow. Okay, that's a lot. (laughs) One thing that made me laugh was the knighting of Richard. They got his name wrong. The Earl got his name wrong. Multiple times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. On page 347, the knighting actually goes, With this knife, I do give you the freedom of the underside. May you be allowed to walk freely without let or hindrance, and so on and so forth, etc. Blah, blah, blah. He trailed off vaguely. I do that a lot, where I'm like, and, you know, etc, etc. Carry on, carry on. I'm not going to finish this thought. So I thought that was great. You know, everyone knows how this goes. The Earl's not going to waste his time. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it was funny. And I loved how Richard just kind of remembered everyone's name. There was a sense of vindication in a way, because the first time that Richard's on the Earl's car, like he's a bit dismissive he's still like in the oh this can't be real like that sort Mm. of mindset whereas now he feels more like he respects the office he respects what everyone's doing he feels less judgmental than he did the first time around and therefore the knighting actually means something now it does Mm. i love that they give him a little fanfare with their bugles like i love the whole thing like i think he's grown we can say that he's grown and changed yeah definitely um i wanted to just mention two things there is the brother Tenebrae who comes to take him to the, the room when they're at the Blackfriars Abbey. And I looked up Tenebrae. It's a religious service that's held just before Easter. I think it's Catholic. And it's characterized by the gradual extinguishing of candles. That really reminded me of Islington's candles and how they would go out one by one when Islington walked away. And so it's kind of like the extinguishing of the candles. I just think it's interesting that Brother Tenebrae shows up here just as they're discussing Islington. Nice catch. I also just wanted to talk about the key as the key of all reality, as the abbot describes it. So, you know, if Richard wants to return to London above, then the key will take him back to London above. But he he gives the key to door and door is the one who uses it to open the door for richard to go back to london above so yeah. can this key now just take door anywhere she wants to go for example to her sister but i just like the idea of door being like yeah you go i'll take this key bye and she's off and doing <laughs> her own thing i hope she finds her sister i'm okay with it being ambiguous because i think it sets up the idea that we can then have a story about door i don't mind an ambiguous ending i like the idea that you know we see a sliver of these characters lives you know the text is just a moment in time and the idea that they can go off and do their other things on their own i quite enjoy that i like the idea of thinking about some of my favorite characters just out there living their lives I like that too. Life isn't really wrapped up neatly ever, so. I wish we could have seen Hammersmith again. I liked him. Yeah. I didn't have very much tangential marginalia this time, really. 
I had those too. And then I just also, there's that bit where when Richard is talking to the rat and his neighbours are really annoyed that there's a rat and then like the guy's going to complain to the council and he says, but that's London for you, isn't it? And yes, Richard, agreed Richard. It was, it really was. And I was just like, (laughs) I really miss London. I just, I get this real sad little tingle of homesickness, but in the kind of sense that you get homesick for a place that no longer exists. I'm sick, homesick for a time and a place that no longer exists because I'm not the same person and the place is not the same and the people I spend time there with is no longer the same. So it's just this like little bubble in time, which is, I think, quite beautiful in that it's bittersweet, but it's beautiful to think about. Well, I'm going to get all sad now. No, no sadness. <sighs> okay. Do you have any marginalia from like the whole book that you wanted to call the attention to? The reason that I say that this is one of my favorite books, and even though I think this close reading that we've done has really challenged me, like I've spent a lot mm. more time with the text than I previously have, and therefore these like kind of bits that we've struggled with has really challenged my perception of this being one of my favorite books. But I always come back to that line on page four where he's meeting this old woman and she just says to him, you've got a good heart and sometimes that it's enough to see you through, but mostly it's not. And it's something that I just, it's like a mantra for me. I kind of Mm. just repeat it to myself. And sometimes when I'm like, yeah, it's just this thing that's in the back of my head, this piece of text. And so I always come back to it. And I still love it. I think it's still important. And I do think it's something to remember that just because you have a good heart or you have good intentions, that doesn't mean that it's going to see you all the way through. It's a good thing to remember. Yeah, it doesn't absolve you from hard things or bad things. Yeah, and it also doesn't mean that you're going to succeed at everything. You can do everything right and have the best of intentions and still fail. Yeah, and tangentially to that, I like this kind of thing that it comes through it's repeated a number of times in the text which is just sometimes there's nothing you can do every time he makes a decision you know when he first walks away from jessica carrying door that's the first time it appears and he says sometimes he realized there's nothing you can do and we saw it again in this section yeah what is the word that we're missing is it there's nothing nothing you can do differently or there's nothing you can do to please the other person yeah i think that's exactly it it's like you can't please everyone and that that's what he realizes in that moment he's like there's nothing you can do can't please everyone I just have to do what I feel is right. That's not going to make everyone happy, right? How about you? Oh, I had a few. Um, I chose one from Richard, one from Dora, and one from the Marquis. So my oh, marginalia from Richard was when it came to real blood, real pain, he simply got on and did something about it. Mm. And I thought that was very true. Like, he was complaining about the mosquito bites in the maze and still managed to, like, slay a beast and... Mm-hmm roll it off of Hunter and touch the blood to his eyes and mouth and be able to find Dora. Like, he was able to get the point across to her that, like, he did not matter as much as not letting Islington out. Mm-hmm. So he was able to kind of get past it. He he doubts himself, but really has more strength and capacity than he thought he did. Um, and then the quote that I picked for Dora was one that I'd been wondering about the whole book. Um, and it shows up on page 129. She wondered briefly if it were simply the door that she had opened that had taken her to him, which had allowed him to notice her, or if there were somehow more to it than that. Mm. And this is the big question, right? Is Richard meant to be in London below? Was he always meant to become part of that world? Because he can see them. (laughs) Yeah. Was he just an accident of time? Was he the person walking by the particular spot that door was on the other side of the dimensional portal or whatever? Um... Yeah, that is an interesting question around why Richard saw Dor. I think it's just because he has the capacity. He has that space within him. And it kind of goes back to Dor, you know, she has to find the place inside herself and opens a door that corresponds to that place, right? So maybe she had to find a space within herself where she could find someone with a good heart, someone who would be able to see her, and that's why she found Richard. And then my last bit of marginalia for the book was... um, the Marquis when he's being tortured to death by Krupp and Vandemar. And the line I picked is on page 239. And it's, it was a brave thing to do, he thought, and a stupid one. And that is just the Marquis. Mm-hmm. He thinks that bravery is stupid because he's so much more cagey and considered and like 100% a Slytherin, right? I was going to say such a Slytherin. <laughs> <laughs> but he does sometimes rise to it. And I think this is really just a story about a lot of people really rising up to do the right thing. Yeah, even old Bailey going underground. He's the best. Oh, so is it still one of your favorite books? Yeah, I think it is. I think it has moments where it's just, it's beautifully written. 
There are some real turns of phrase that I absolutely love in it. Obviously that whole good heart section. I also love that bit where Richard talks about how he's gone beyond the world of metaphor and simile into a place of things that are and Mm. it was changing him. Like there's some really beautiful turns of phrase and I just love how it comes storming home. Like the story just like wraps up so beautifully and it's just like, as you said, an absolutely amazing bit of storytelling. I think spending this much time with it and really delving into the text was hard. But the characters all come into their own. They all stand up to the challenges. So that's good too. We're looking at this as if it's something to learn from. We're taking the best of it. Like we're looking for compassion and we're looking for our other themed things. And we did manage to Mm. find them every week, which means that it works as a sacred text. Like, Yeah, I think there's a lot of compassion in there. There's a lot of people rising up and doing the right thing, even though it's hard. And I think Mm. that's a valuable lesson to take with us. Sometimes doing the right thing is difficult and you're not going to please everyone and... It might upset your own life, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So yes, pick up that bloody street girl and carry her home. (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll all work out in the end. Oh, we should do a character spotlight. Yes. So you go first. I was originally going to spotlight Dor, but I think I'm actually going to spotlight Anesthesia. She's just this poor girl who was just doing as she was told, and then she suffered this terrible fate something that shouldn't have happened to her and no one was there to mourn her but Richard cared and I think that it's so important that he carries her with him still she wasn't a waste she wasn't she was important and her life mattered and that means something she showed him kindness when no one else did and there's such power in that it's really sad what happened to her and it just like it has no explanation there's no body it's just this gaping hole but you know, I yeah. just want to recognize that loss. Um, who would you like to spotlight? Um, this is a bit weird because I literally hate dudes like this, but I really want to spotlight Gary. Oh, when it comes down to it, he acts with such great compassion. He really mm. listens to Richard. He hears him out. He offers a couple different perspectives. He gives him the chance to say, like, does it really matter if it's not true? If you believe it happened, then it happened. Like, the effects mm. are real, whether the experience was or not. It's a very brave thing to say in the mid-90s, for sure. Mm-hmm. But if you look at this through a mental health lens, like, this is somebody who instinctively gets that, like, your experiences are legitimate because they're your experiences. Like, there's something about the way that he was so good with Richard this time that really mm. got me. So even if you yeah. are, like, kind of objectively a terrible person, if you can just come in clutch for a friend, like you're doing okay I thought it was quite something that he suggested you know have have you talked to someone you know he Mm. suggests therapy which you know these days I suggest therapy to anyone who stands still long enough but back then it wasn't so common for people to suggest therapy so oh yeah there was still a huge I mean there's still a huge stigma about it now but yeah very different back then well thanks for recognizing Gary's potential I'm so glad you shouted out anesthesia as well she deserved better she did Well, this has been a book. It has been, hasn't it? (laughs) I'm really glad we took it on. And I'm really glad that we stuck with it. There were parts of it that were really hard. But I think by seeing it through, it gave us a little more resilience. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to know that there are still lessons. And it may be even more important to stick with things when they're hard to really get those lessons out of it. Yes. And it's just really compelled me to return to things that I'm like, oh, I don't like it. No, Jen, stick with it. You know, there's something of value in there. We got about halfway through this 10-week block and it was like, whew. I know. At one point I said, I had an idea. And you're like, should we just read the whole thing and do it in one week? And I was like, no, but I understand the impulse. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, she's having a hard time too. Okay. (laughs) It's not just me. Because there was just like some moments where people were very unlikable and doing unlikable things. What's that saying about like every country swears that they made it up? Like, don't like the weather, wait five minutes, it'll change. Mm. It's like that in books too. Like if the character's being truly unlikable, we'll wait five minutes. See if something happens. Didn't you say something about Snape? I don't know why that rec- reminded me oh, of Snape. Oh, yes. Um, when we were talking about how much we, like, because you, you, you know, this is one of your favorite books. So you were like, I can't wait to read it. It's going to be so great. And we were getting into it. We were right in the middle. We were in the weeds of it where it was quite difficult. And I said, oh, we want a Draco, but we're getting Snape. Because mm. it was at the Snapeiest <laughs> part of the book where we were like, this is actually not that fun. Oh, where's the redemption? And then, you know, it, it came Draco again. But yeah, I would say this one was harder to love, but I'm so glad we spent the time on it. Yeah. 
And I'm definitely going to remember it now because I think even though it was like I would call it one of my favorite books, I had not remembered a lot of this. Like I obviously had just yeah. glossed over the bits that I don't like or that I struggled with in this reading. But now mm. because we've taken such a time with it, I'm not going to forget these bits that I've sort of just glossed over in the past. Yeah, I've, I've been fighting that too. I've been really loving the opportunity to like learn a book really well because I'm mm. a very fast reader and I do tend to just zip through things. Yeah. But here we're chucking a rock in to the lake every week. Where am I going with this? Maybe we're <laughs> doing radar on the lake. We're not a boat on the top. Every week we stop and we map a little bit more of it. Exploring. Yeah. That's it is good. hard work, but it is good work. And I'm so glad that I get to do it with you because I love you and I love this time and it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. And so good to get your perspective as well. And it's just like knowing that we have set this aside and that I have the time to really delve into it and to have you to help me tease out my thoughts. It just means the world to me. So thank you. Mm, me too. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to be reading Strange the Dreamer in my beautiful hardcover. I like this cover a lot. It is beautiful. It's gold and blue and it's got moths on it. I'm not that keen on the moths, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> I was not either until this story and now I am like, I love the little moth friends. I don't mind moths in theory. I just don't like them in my house. That's okay. The only moths that are in your house are in this book now. They're always at the window. They'll be at the window shortly. As soon as it gets dark, they'll be pinging <laughs> off the window if I don't close the curtain. Oh, fair enough. Well, I'm really excited about Strange the Dreamer, but I'm not going to start reading it until after our little break because I want to fully sink into the first chapter. I've been really struggling not to like just read the whole thing over again. No, no. We're going to take our time. And we also have to do our little one shot. The Fall, beautifully shot film, and I'm really looking forward to just uh, delving into that with you and also just talking about Lee Pace for like an hour. <laughs> it's just going to be the Lee Pace hour. My friend Anne once said he's a man. She'd like to climb like a tree. And that really spoke <laughs> to me on like a spiritual level. He's quite tall. I try not to objectify, but he's so handsome. So excited to watch The Fall with you, though. Yay! I'm so excited as well. No, it's going to be great. All right, should we wrap up <laughs> i have loved this so much and i'm I think even this book which was hard for us we get to the end of it and like, we don't want to say goodbye do we i don't want to say no. goodbye necessarily but then the new things are coming yeah i mean i really you know we learn to love these characters look, look how far we've come with the marquee you know from kind of hating him oh, yeah. in the first part and now we're like oh he's mm. gotten his soul back and door and richard yeah. and even hunter door was lovable always. always richard we loved then didn't love and now love again yeah. And then Hunter yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, she also deserved better. Yeah. But, you know, she died as she lived on the hunt. So I guess there's honour in that. Yeah, she did say, I will slay the great beast of London or die in the attempt. Mm. And she did. Another woman who knows her own mind and has complete agency. Just like Bella Swan. <laughs> it always comes back to Bella Swan. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I met her at a very formative time in my life. Uh, yeah, same. And she, yeah, she gets a bad rap, okay? I'm just going to put it out there. People put too much on Bella Swan and Twilight. And just like, just chill, everyone. Just chill. Let them be what they are. Yeah. Sparkly vampire novels for the tweens. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for potting with me. I'm so happy we got to do yeah, this. Yeah, me too. And I'm really looking forward to um, our next little adventure. Yeah. I know. Our one shot and then our next book and then another one shot. It's going to be really Amazing. Fun. Well, catch you next time. All right, see you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.